What if the world as we know it was not what it appeared to be? What if the very nature of matter could be changed, shifted, moved through time and space? And what if we, our physical bodies, could be moved by that matter as it transformed? What if we found out we were lab rats in an experiment so perilous and strange that it altered us forever? What would become of us, the survivors of science fiction? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is a gullible skeptic, which, let me tell you, is exhausting. This week, these days it's pretty easy to get wild rumors and conspiracy theories spread far and wide with just a few well-placed tweets and maybe a segment on Joe Rogan's podcast. But back in 1943, before the internet and toxic dude bros with podcasts, things worked a little differently. On this episode, we'll look at how one story, documented in a collection of mysterious letters, was delivered to one person, and from there, the tale cemented itself among the curious and questioning minds out there as part of a mythical zeitgeist of conspiracy and supernatural futurism. It was called The Philadelphia Experiment. On January 13, 1956, ufologist, auto parts salesman, and author of The Case for the UFO, Morris K. Jessup, received a string of incredibly bizarre letters from someone calling himself Carlos Allende, with the return address in Pennsylvania, but a postmark in Texas. In his letters, Allende described a massive, top-secret naval experiment in which the Navy successfully managed to make an entire ship disappear off the face of the Earth. Now, if you're listening to this and you grew up in the 80s, like me, you're probably like, I saw the famous magician David Copperfield on TV do that to the Statue of Liberty when I was eight. Yeah, me too. But one, I'm pretty sure he used mirrors, and two... I don't think he was in league with the military. But hey, maybe this is where he got the idea. Anyway, let's all agree that David Copperfield has nothing to do with this. Why did I bring him up? Where am I? What is happening? Oh right, invisible naval destroyers. In July of 1943, Allende wrote to Jessup that a crew aboard the USS Eldridge, a Navy destroyer, fired up generators, RF transmitters, amplifier tubes, and a whole bunch of other incredibly specialized hardware designed to generate massive electromagnetic fields, which, if they did what they were designed to do, would bend space and radio waves, making the ship invisible to enemy observers. And, according to Allende, it worked. Once the machinery was powered up, a green fog enveloped the entire ship. And as the fog disappeared, so, it seems, did the ship. Not only had the ship been rendered radar invisible, it was invisible invisible. People standing from a distance could no longer see an entire naval destroyer that had been there mere moments before. After 15 minutes or so, the generators were powered back down, the green fog reappeared, and so did the ship. But when naval personnel boarded the newly returned USS Eldridge, they found the crew disoriented and nauseous. 
The crew, it seemed, were so negatively affected by the magnetic force field they'd been put in that the Navy got rid of them and replaced them all with a new crew. I don't know if the original crew were restationed or discharged or what. It sounds like a classic military, nothing to see here, folks, kind of move. Anyway, voila, there was a new crew aboard the USS Eldridge, and the Navy decided they didn't need to make the whole ship disappear IRL, they just needed it to be invisible to radar, so they adjusted the hardware, and then, in October of that same year, they ran the experiment again. This time, when the machines were fired up, a very vague outline of the ship could still be gleaned in the water. But then, as a devoted blogger Andrew H., you know, good old Andrew H., put it, quote, in a blinding blue flash, the ship completely vanished, end quote. Seconds later, the ship materialized hundreds of miles away in Norfolk, Virginia. And then, just as quickly as it appeared there, it vanished again and reappeared back where it had started, in Philadelphia. This time, though, the crew aboard the USS Eldridge had, in Allende's words, gone mad as hatters. These men, Allende said, would find themselves stuck in a kind of psychological freeze that they came to call Hell Incorporated, which has to be the title of some death metal album, right? Allende wrote... The man, thusly stricken, cannot move of his own volition unless two or more of those who are within the field go and touch him quickly, else he freezes. Allende described the very complicated process of unfreezing someone stuck in this state, but said it could take hours, days, or even months to get the poor soul unstuck. Like a really drawn-out, boring game of freeze tag. And if you think that's weird, strap in, sailor. Because this guy's story, much like his writing style, only gets more disorienting. Frozen men are not aware of time as we know it. They are like semi-comatose persons who live, breathe, look, and feel, but still are unaware of so utterly many things as to constitute a netherworld to them. A man in an ordinary common freeze is aware of time, sometimes acutely so, yet they are never aware of time precisely as you or I are aware of it. Allende also claimed that some men would randomly disappear or appear to be in a heat mirage long after the experiment had ended. Others, he claimed, went missing during the experiment, never to be seen or heard from again. And one sailor walked through a wall in plain view of witnesses and vanished forever. Allende also spoke of men being fused to the ship, like half-buried in solid objects. It's unclear if these men had survived being fused with the ship and had to be somehow unfused, or if fusing with the ship was a death sentence. Either way, I'm pretty sure it sucked. Allende signed one of the letters to Jessup. Very disrespectfully yours, Carlos Allende. Allende, it turns out, had a serious bone to pick with Jessup. In his book, The Case for the UFO, Jessup asked people to lean on their government representatives to fund more research into economical space travel. 
Allende thought that if one experiment was such an incredible disaster, how many more people would be irreversibly harmed by further research, development, and experiments? Also, Allende argued, the science behind the experiments relied heavily on Einstein's unified field theory, which Einstein himself apparently couldn't quite wrap his head around and kind of abandoned. If the theory the experiments were based on was incomplete, Allende said, the experiments were doomed to fail and harm more people in the process. I would try to explain unified field theory, but honestly, it's like NFTs. No one actually understands it. I certainly don't. Anyway, Jessup was understandably intrigued by Allende's claims and sent him a postcard asking for any proof or evidence. And Allende was like, uh... He remembered neither dates nor the names of crew members who had allegedly gone insane. Maybe, Allende suggested, he'd remember more if he was given narco-hypnosis, which is, as you probably guessed it, basically just getting high. So Jessup dropped the whole thing, probably chalked Allende up as someone with an overactive imagination who maybe needed some attention. Jessup was like, not today, Bob. But then, a little more than a year later, in the spring of 1957, Jessup received an invitation from the Office of Naval Research, which is not, as I first thought, a government agency that researches belly buttons. Their loss. To come to their offices in Washington, D.C. to discuss a paperback copy of his own book that someone had anonymously mailed them, with the margins filled with notes from, apparently, three different people, one of whom was almost definitely Carlos Allende. Okay, we learned that Morris K. Jessup received an invitation from the Office of Naval Research, or ONR, to discuss this mysterious copy of his own book, Riddled with Weird Notes. A year before Jessup had received his first letter from Allende in 1956, someone had anonymously sent his book to the ONR along with a note that simply read, Happy Easter. The only clue as to where it might have come from was the postmark from Seminole, Texas. The margins were filled with hundreds of handwritten notes in three different ink colors. The authors of the margin notes called themselves Mr. A, Mr. B, and Jemmy. According to blogger Andrew H., the notes contained words and phrases such as mothership, home fleet, great bombardment, great war, force fields, deep freezes, undersea buildings, scout ships, magnetic and gravity fields, vortices, dematerialization, and magnetic net. Jessup recognized one of the sets of handwriting as Carlos Allende's. It's worth noting that Carlos Allende's real name, at least according to his Navy papers, was Carl Meredith Allen. Why he had chosen to give Jessup this pseudonym is anyone's guess. He had also given Jessup his naval ID number, so the matter of his true identity was only a quick search away. Also, your pseudonym shouldn't be more than just your name with some letters attached. That would be like me trying to hide my identity by calling myself Daisita Igende. Like, who are you trying to fool? 
The content, too, was strikingly similar to what Allende had written to Jessup the year earlier. U.S. Navy's force field experiments, 1943 October, produced invisibility of crew and ship. Fearsome results, so terrifying as to. Fortunately, further research halted. Ethereal types, similar to results of Navy experiments in force field invisibility, 1943, solids go through them. No harm to occupants at all. Perhaps they detected field activity of Navy D-E, which was close by, before testing an invisibility experimental gadget. Thus now you see over all wisdom of Einstein's retraction of his unified field theory, in U.S. Navy's ship invisibility experiments, 1943, results of such uninformed tinkering seemed to show the correctness of his reason for retraction. Jemmy. I dread those fireballs, and I believe the U.S. Navy may also have formed some out of human material, 1943 to 1944. The writing provided answers to the questions Jessup had asked, and the writers made little effort to conceal their contempt for mere human beings, end quote. I don't know if that implies that the authors of the notes were not human beings themselves, or rather, they were human beings who had contempt for human beings, and if it's the latter, same girl. Anyway, Jessup handed the Allende letters over to the ONR, and the ONR was like, cool. Also, we're going to republish a limited edition of your book, complete with all these insane margin notes and the letters. Thanks! Less book and more some kind of official government-style memo, complete with one of those official-type plastic sheet covers and a three-page introduction by the ONR, 25 copies of the Varro edition, named after the publishing house the ONR used, of the case for the UFO was distributed in-house among top Navy personnel. And, of course, the big question was, why? The ONR's official answer is that a couple of rogue officers took it upon themselves to print and distribute this version of Jessup's book using their own funds— Legend has it these officers even traveled to Pennsylvania to visit the address used as the return address on the original letters, and all they found was a vacant farmhouse. This story doesn't make much sense if you believe the version where the ONR told Jessup they would be republishing his book. If Jessup's invitation was from the ONR, who apparently told him they would be republishing his book for internal distribution— it couldn't also have been two rogue agents working on their own. I'm also curious as to why the ONR or the rogue officers didn't try harder to track down Allende, or rather, Carl M. Allen. He had included his naval officer number in his letters to Jessup, but it seems, aside from visiting the address on the envelopes, they didn't try very hard. 
It seems to me that if someone sends you something filled with anonymous and incredibly strange notes and someone is able to identify one of the note writers, that it would be sort of important to try really hard to find that person. But maybe that's just me. Another possible explanation as to why the ONR had Jessup's book republished, according to the article in Fate, is that they really were conducting these super-secret and clearly very dangerous invisibility experiments, and they needed all the information they could get their hands on, no matter how seemingly outlandish or anonymous that information was. Eventually, at least 127 copies of the Vero edition were being circulated inside the Navy. And, of course, copies leaked out, and the Vero edition for the case for the UFO became one of the most valued and sought-after documents in the UFO buff community. The holy grail of UFO documents. Of course, Jessup, whose work was being coveted and secretly passed around, didn't see a dime since the Vero edition wasn't for sale. It was just distributed. Apparently, the Navy didn't see fit to compensate Jessup for his time and effort at all. In 1959, Jessup was found dead in his car on the side of a road in Florida where he was living at the time. A hose had been attached to the exhaust pipe and run through a cracked window. His death was deemed a suicide. His attempts at getting published again after the case for the UFO all failed. His wife had left him, and he had been in a terrible deforming car crash months earlier from which he wasn't recovering well. Also, he lived in Florida. The man clearly did not have a lot going for him and was, according to friends, extremely depressed and despondent. But, of course, as is always the way with anyone or anything having to do with classified, top-secret government shit, conspiracy theories started to fly. After all, Jessup had only just the day before called a friend and said he had something important to tell him about the Philadelphia experiment. Was it really that he had hit rock bottom and was depressed? Or did he know too much? Regardless of whether it was a suicide or a government conspiracy and cover-up, after Jessup's death, the Philadelphia experiment remained a relatively obscure legend. Indeed, up to this point, Carlos Allende was, according to himself anyway, the only person alive to have witnessed the USS Eldridge disappear or have any knowledge of the damage the experiment did to dozens of Navy sailors. There was, after all, almost no media coverage of the event at all. No major reports of people watching an entire boat disappear right in front of their eyes. According to Andrew H.'s blog, I know you didn't forget about Andrew H., 55 days after the second experiment was alleged to have happened, on the BBC's radio program Brains Trust... Quote, a naval commander, A.B. Campbell, told the story of a sailor walking through walls, etc., end quote. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find a clip of that particular episode, so I don't know the context. In his letters, Allende said there were various newspaper accounts of the experiment, but he couldn't remember which papers or when the reports came out. Indeed, he wrote... 
Check Philadelphia papers for a tiny one paragraph of an item describing the sailors' actions after their initial voyage. They raided a locale to the Navy Yard gin mill or beer joint and caused such shock and paralysis of the waitresses that little comprehensible could be gotten from them. Save that paragraph, and the writer of it does not believe it and says, I only wrote what I heard, and them dames is daffy. So all I get is hide it bedtime story. Again, super hard to follow, but basically what Allende claims the article reported was that a fight broke out at a tavern near a naval yard, I assume in Philadelphia, during which two sailors vanished into thin air. But there was no actual evidence of this article ever having been written or appearing in any paper anywhere. And then, in 1969, Allende admitted he made the whole thing up. His goal, he said, had been to scare the hell out of Jessup. Again, he was concerned that Jessup had used his book, The Case for the UFO, as a plea to the public to lean on their representatives to fund more research into commercial space travel. And do I even need to go into how weird and twisted all of this so-called logic is? First of all, why was Jessup appealing to the general public rather than to government officials directly? I mean, I get trying to sway public opinion, but this just seems weird and roundabout. Secondly, the book was already published when Allende wrote to Jessup. Like, too late, bro. What did he think he was going to accomplish? That Jessup would be like, my bad, and what, retract the book? Also, if Allende was concerned that Jessup's book would lead to more dangerous experiments, why did he send a copy of the book to the Navy? Did he really think the obscure and nonsensical margin scrawls, which, by the way, he admitted to being the sole author of, would somehow convince the Navy to stop these experiments? Here's an idea. Why not just go to the Navy people and be like, hey, these experiments are super dangerous and here's why. Please stop. Maybe they wouldn't have taken him seriously, but aside from the annotated Vero edition of Jessup's book distributed inside the Navy, it doesn't really seem like Allende's stunt made much of an impact anyway. Asked why he hadn't come forward sooner, Allende claimed that a new article by a man named Brad Steiger in a single-issue magazine from January of that year called Saga's Special UFO Report recounted the story Allende had originally laid out to Jessup and that not only was it a highly sensationalized version of Allende's original story, but because the whole thing had been a hoax to begin with, he was desperate to have it put to bed. Ten years after Allende's confession that he'd made it all up, author and paranormal investigator Charles Berlitz published a book entitled The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility. And, incidentally, wouldn't you know it, Allende himself crawled out of obscurity and was like, I take back my take back. It did happen. This fucking guy. 
Berlitt's book was made into a spectacularly bad movie that I watched so you don't have to. It's cheap as fuck and apparently the hair department didn't know that 1980s hairdos weren't the same as 1940s hairdos. And yes, I am a snob, but this movie is bad. Bad or not, the movie kept this story going and jogged the memory of a man who came forward and claimed to be only the second eyewitness to the Philadelphia experiment. In a 1988 interview with author Kevin Burke, a man named Al Bielek claimed to have been serving in the Navy and on the USS Eldridge when it disappeared and allegedly transported itself to Virginia and back in the span of a few seconds in 1943. Bielek explained in an extraordinarily long-winded and tangential way, I had only become aware of my involvement in 1988. It was all blanked out in the meantime. There was a very thorough job of brainwashing, believe me. But it finally broke through. It broke through in January 1988 when I watched HBO late one Saturday night. I had never seen the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment. Of course, it had gone through the regular movie circuits before that, and I'd seen the dockets in the local movie in the town I was in at that time, Sedona, Arizona. The docket was The Philadelphia Experiment. I was only there a week, and for some reason, I didn't go. I didn't see it again. Then... It went into the video format, and EMI Thorne took it over and got the rights to put it on video from the producers, and they started showing it. So that night, on HBO at 4 a.m., they announced that the next feature of the evening would be the Philadelphia Experiment. Well, I was about to go to bed, but I said no, because I wanted to watch it. I'd heard so much about it. Seriously, dude, you're going to spend half an hour explaining how you came to watch a movie on HBO at 4 a.m. one night? Not all of us can time travel our way back to before you started talking, man. Way more importantly, and more to the point, Bielek said the movie was incredibly accurate, at least the first 15 minutes of it, according to the newly recovered memories that had been brainwashed out of him. I should note, though, that Bielek was already a pretty heavy UFO believer and government conspiracy theorist. He claimed to have also been involved in the Montauk Project, which was supposedly a series of government projects designed to develop psychological warfare techniques and time travel, which is an odd pairing, if you ask me, but have at it, secret government project. Incidentally, the Montauk Project was, quote, exposed by two men, one named Preston Nichols and the other, ready for it, Al Bielek. So between the fact that he was already a conspiracy theorist and was indeed one of the two authors of a pretty major conspiracy, it's hard to take this guy too seriously. And then, finally, in the early 90s, an astrophysicist and ufologist, Jacques F. Vallée, published an article about the legend of the Philadelphia experiment and did a really obvious thing that it seems not even the Navy had done, or at least not publicly, up until this point. He asked that anyone with information about the Philadelphia experiment and the USS Eldridge contact him. 
Vallee received a letter from a man named Edward Dungeon who said he'd been in the Navy from 1942 to 1945 and indeed had full knowledge of the experiment and what all that crazy equipment used in it had actually been for. The experiment and all its hardware accoutrement had indeed been designed to render the ship invisible to radar, but not by making the ship actually invisible just by scrambling its position on enemy radar so its location couldn't be pinpointed. A pretty useful thing if you want to avoid being torpedoed, for instance. Dungeon said the reported green glow around the ship was most likely an electrical storm or St. Elmo's fire, which, fun fact, is apparently not just a peak Brat Pack era film starring a feathered hair Rob Lowe, but also an actual weather phenomenon which creates an atmospheric electric field specifically around ships with their masts and rods, causing a green glow of plasma. Think the Flying Dutchman of maritime legend and SpongeBob SquarePants. Dungeon chalked up the wild story to sailors' loose talk. Ever heard the term loose lips sink ships? I guess in this instance it would be loose lips create wild conspiracy theories that spiral out of control and result in not just one, but two really bad Hollywood movies. Oh, did I mention there was a sequel to the original Philadelphia Experiment? The Philadelphia Experiment 2, Electric Boogaloo. Just kidding, it didn't have that subtitle. It definitely would have been a better movie if it had, though. As for the claim that the USS Eldridge blooped out of existence in Philly, reappeared in Virginia, and then popped back into existence in Philly within seconds... Dungeon explained that there were channels not available to commercial or recreational ships that made the normally two-day journey a mere six hours. Perhaps the USS Eldridge took one of those fast lanes, and a few witnesses turned half a day into just a few seconds in their memory. Lord knows the human memory is about as reliable as a deadbeat dad who promises this time he'll make it to your dance recital. As we just learned in the Mandela Effect episode, people are experts at getting shit wrong. Sure, it's hard to imagine how someone could mistake at least 12 hours for a few seconds, but let's not forget that the two witnesses who said the ship teleported itself to Virginia and back in a few seconds were Carlos Miguel Allende, whose real name, I remind you, was Carl Allen, and who was a known hoaxer, and Al Bielek, who, no offense bro, sounded like he was a couple knives short of a full deck, if you know what I mean. More damningly though, the Navy itself says the USS Eldridge was never even in Philadelphia. According to an internal investigation, the Navy concluded, The ship involved in the experiment was supposedly the USS Eldridge. The archives has reviewed the deck log and war diary from Eldridge's commissioning on the 27th of August, 1943, at the New York Navy Yard through December 1943. After commissioning, Eldridge remained in New York and in the Long Island Sound until the 16th of September, when it sailed to Bermuda. From the 18th of September, the ship was in the vicinity of Bermuda, undergoing training and sea trials until the 15th of October, when Eldridge left in a convoy for New York, where the convoy entered on the 18th of October. Eldridge remained in New York Harbor until the 1st of November, 
when it was part of the escort for convoy UGS-23. On the 2nd of November, the convoy entered Naval Operating Base Norfolk. On the 3rd of November, Eldridge and convoy UGS-23 left for Casablanca, where it arrived on the 22nd of November. On the 29th of November, Eldridge left as one of escorts for convoy GUS-22 and arrived with the convoy on the 17th of December at New York Harbor. Eldridge remained in New York on availability training and in Block Island Sound until the 31st of December, when it steamed to Norfolk with four other ships. During this time frame, Eldridge was never in Philadelphia. According to an article in the Philadelphia City paper, there was a reunion in 1999 of crew members from the USS Eldridge who had heard the rumors about the Philadelphia experiment and thought it was hilarious considering the ship had never even been to Philadelphia. I'm no historian, but I think it's safe to assume you're probably closest to the truth by taking the word of people who were actually on the ship at the time in question. But anyway, in a story full of inconsistencies and confusion, one presumption is never in question, that the U.S. government and the military always have and continue to conduct all kinds of top-secret research and experiments, the secrecy of which obviously lends itself to wild speculation and conspiracy theories. But here we are, three-quarters of a century later, and the only person who seems to have figured out how to successfully disappear massive objects, like destroyers and the people on them, is famous magician David Copperfield. But his bold brand of popular entertainment does not seem to have any strategic governmental applications. I feel like we would know something about that by now if it did. Then again, maybe that's just what they want us to think. Nothing to see here, folks. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. The world of our dreams is uncharted territory every time we enter it. But what if we could write the rules? Lucid dreaming is a cultural fascination and skill that, if used correctly, can unlock extraordinary experiences. But what happens when control goes too far? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 